0: banks just cannot catch a break. Even today when there's a rebound, you see the banking sector and the S P 500 lagging behind the broader gains uh, in the index. And in fact, bank stocks are down more than 17% by several measures so far this year. Joining us now, Charles Peabody, president of Portales Partners in New York. Charles, do you get the sense that this is going to continue this pain in, in bank stocks?
2: Well, as you know from my earlier appearances, I, I do think we're in a bear market for bank stocks, and, and the end won't come until they're down at least 30 to 50 percent from their first quarter 18 highs. Um, that said, I think the first leg of the bear market is actually starting to conclude.
1: Why is that? Give us more detail.
2: Well, a lot's going to depend uh, upon the Fed, and and you know whatever relief rally we have, it's hard to tell um, until we know what the Fed's going to do. But uh, I think we could go sideways um, in a trading range before the next leg of the bear market begins, or we could have quite a robust rally and maybe even retest the September highs um, of 18 um, if the Fed were to. Um, change its language about QT, which I think is more important than what they do with Fed funds.
1: But why are the bank stocks so dependent on the Federal Reserve's language at a time when the banks seem to have pared down their risk-taking operations and have also shed hundreds of thousands of workers? Well, I
2: I think there's a big difference between what you're seeing today in, in the markets and what you saw back in January, February when we had a, a sell-off scare, if you will. If you recall correctly, QT didn't start until October of 17. So we were only about three or four months into it when we had the sell-off in equities in January, February of 18. Um, but back then, we weren't seeing the plumbing of the fixed income markets grinding to a halt. Today, we're seeing the plumbing of the fixed-income markets grinding to a halt. And we're about a year-plus into QT, and we're Just hold um, on one second. People don't know
0: about. what QT is. It's quantitative tightening, and you're talking about the Fed uh, basically shrinking its balance sheet. It's $4 trillion balance sheet, correct?
2: Right. And we're at the max now of, what, $50 billion a month. Um, and that affects banks' liquidity and ability to lubricate the system. And so what you're starting to see is a lot of hung loans, uh, loans that can't be, you know, turned over and distributed um, because the capital markets are breaking down. The fixed income buyer is is slowing its purchase. And so the capital structure of the banking system is starting to get used. I I won't say impaired, but used up, if you will.
0: This is actually a really...
2: Go ahead, this is a
0: really interesting point. I just wanted to really uh, sort of highlight this, what you're talking about, basically leveraged loans, that there were a lot of deals that were announced, private equity buyouts, uh, which were at the fastest pace since 2007. There were a lot of these deals announced. They were trying to get them done. Banks committed capital to these companies at certain levels. And now these banks, in order to sell these loans, have to sell them at huge discounts. Is that basically what you're seeing?
2: It, it, Exactly, Lisa, and very well put. And, and if they can't sell them, they're retaining them. Um, and so between the QT, the quantitative tightening, which is, you know, reducing excess reserves and the drawdown of credit lines, um, you're seeing the liquidity um, picture on banks' balance sheets change quite dramatically. Um, so they're seeing a loss of wholesale non-operating deposits, and they're seeing a drawdown of their lines, and some of the drawdown is is a positive, but some is is you know like pg and e the troubled California utility, which drew down their lines you know i think what was it like forty one billion in less than a month, you know that's not the kind of loan demand you want to see
0: charles how how big could the losses be from some of these uh, committed loans that the banks have already have hanging out there?
2: You know, the the, the rule of thumb is when you get into a recession, um, and that's where I think we're headed by the end of the year, um, which is part of my, you know, logic behind the bear market has not yet ended, um, and that these stocks will be down 50% by the end of the bear market. Um, The rule of thumb is you're going to lose maybe 30 Percent um, on, on a loan. What's different this time is is that you've had such a weakening of the covenants that you actually may lose much more this time around um, than you have in the past. You may not have as many loans going bad, but you're going to lose more per loan because of the weakening of covenants.
1: Charles, haven't the banks had almost a decade to prepare for this?
2: Oh, they have, Tim. And I think banks are in much, much better shape um, this time around to deal with, um with a recession and some credit fallout. And in fact, uh, I would argue that this will be the first recession that I've followed and I've seen four of them um that the banks will actually come out with their balance sheets intact. There won't be the huge capital impairments that characterize prior recessions and banks spent most of the, you know, first two or three years of the recovery repairing their balance sheets and replenishing their capital. What I do think you're going to see is what I call an earnings recession, and that's what we're adjusting to right now in, in the way the stocks have traded this year. is. Uh, if, you, if you recall my last appearance with you guys, I talked about a three-legged bear market. And the first leg would be characterized by slowing growth or disappointing revenues. And that would be reflected in multiple, multiple compression. And that's what you've seen this year. The second leg is gonna be more related to credit deterioration. And we're not there yet. And that's why I think you could have some kind of relief rally, you know, probably sometime starting in January.
0: Yeah. Charles, which bank do you think is most exposed to these hung loans?
2: Well, Wells Fargo has... um been involved in, in a couple of them. You know, if if I were going to buy the banks, I, I wouldn't buy the regionals. And it's interesting that, that the regionals are weak today. I would actually buy the money centers. And, and those are the ones that are actually holding up a little bit better today. Um, and the reason is, if there is going to be a rally, it's going to be related to Fed action, which will grease the skids for the capital markets. And that would be very um, positive for the money centers, but but Wells, you know, is one of those banks that um, is capped by regulatory restrictions on unit volume growth. And so they can't grow their net interest income unless they you know, take actions to um, enhance their margin. Um, so if you think about it, net interest income is a function of volume times margin. The unit volume component is capped by regulatory restrictions. So they have to pull levers and, and enhance the margin. And that can be done either by taking interest rate risk, which they're doing, or by changing the mix of your assets and going after higher margin type assets. And they've been doing that. They've been very aggressive in the leveraged loan market and they've been caught, I think.
1: Thank you very much for being with us. Charles Peabody is the president of Portalis Partners, speaking about the U.S. banking system and the potential for more sell-offs in bank stocks. Well, in the United Kingdom, the cabinet of Prime Minister Theresa May has put into place emergency no-deal Brexit contingency plans. They say they must be implemented across government. It includes reserving ferry space for supplies and putting 3,500 armed forces personnel on standby, the Prime Minister's office said that ministers would ramp up no-deal planning and that all the departments would be expected to make it their main priority. Here to help us understand the consequences for investors is Alberto Gallo. He is a partner and portfolio manager for Algebra's Macro Credit Fund. That is under the umbrella of Algebra's Investments. That's managing more than 12 and a half million. Billion dollars, and he joins us from London, Alberto. What can you tell us about the reaction to the contingency plans that the cabinet is now set to put in place?
3: Uh, good morning. Um, we have definitely seen a very strong posturing from the government, um, at least, uh, showing they're ready to face the the really worst case scenario. Uh, having said that, um, we know that very, very few people are you know, realistically planning to go that far because we know the consequences for the country would be uh, really severe. Um, so our view here remains that um, there is a vote in January and that there will be an extension of the transition agreement, so the limbo period under which the UK will have to define the long-term Partnership with the EU so this extension could be two three, two to three years um, and you know, during this time things could change. Uh, there, is a, there is definitely a shift in public opinion. Um, so I would not exclude that in two years' time or three years' time you know the Brexit vote would be, will would be five years old and will be less relevant so you could even have a second referendum at some point in the future.
0: So in the meantime, though, there is actually a tangible influence. I mean, Credit Suisse, for example, uh, just advised some of its high net worth clients to consider moving assets out of the United Kingdom. We've seen banks move some of their personnel to Paris, to Frankfurt. Uh, there have been material moves by a number of companies. So, do you think that this is going to have a permanent effect, frankly, on the UK, regardless of whether there's an additional referendum? And do you agree? Do you want to move people to move money out of the out of the region?
3: It does have a permanent effect. I mean, we we estimated just around and before the Brexit ball happened, we estimated a loss of around eight uh, percent of GDP, or nearly 200 billion dollars, over a period of 10 years. So there is a drag on the economy, uh, and you know various think tank and universities universities have estimated a similar amount. So the growth trend. Um, is lowered, and the major issue is the u k doesn 't have a growth model uh, to um, build um, on its own future it, it was based on services it was it, you know the economy is still based on importing human capital um, money sorry, uh, financial capital uh, physical goods, and exporting services uh, and so it depends a lot on trade and the nearest region to trade with is europe, so we don 't have a an alternative business model for the United Kingdom yet. Uh, There's been very little investment in research, in uh, infrastructure over the last two decades because the services economy and the trade were going so well. So this is the missing piece of the puzzle. The government has been focusing a lot on negotiations, but very little on uh, how the UK is going to grow in the future.
1: Alberto, just to pick up on your point having to do with the transition period and a potential extension of that transition period, the UK government would still owe at least part of the nearly $45 billion that they've agreed to pay the European Union in order to purchase that status quo transition period. Do they have the money?
3: yeah that's correct. So there will be a continuation of the payments, most likely, maybe uh, a smaller amount, but a continuation of the payment to the European Union. Let's remember, however, that the UK was also net, uh, was also a receip- recipient of aid. A lot of regions of the UK, the poorer ones you know, are um, destinations where the EU are, uh, the EU has been funding projects uh, and created jobs so the net number is a lot smaller is a much closer to 10 billion uh per year um clearly you know this the picture that we see here is lower growth but still positive uh, in the markets sometimes you see extreme pricing which um suggests you know a, a very a tail type scenario, uh, for example, in, uh, in credit markets, some of the you know corporate or bank bonds in the UK uh, are pricing a, a heavy recession. We think that's excessive, um, but you know what we see is really a kick the can a muddle through environment.
0: So Alberto, let's just—if I were Tom Keat I would say let's rip up the script for a second. I want to go through a couple of just quick quick questions. Number one, where in Europe do you think is the best place to invest?
3: Well, I think that you know, Germany is definitely benefiting the most from the eurozone. Will continue to uh, to benefit, um, but there's a couple of other places where the risk of a recession has been really, really priced in by the market. One of them is the UK, and the other one is Spain. Uh, and you know, the these two countries still have good trend growth. Uh, they're still growing positively. Spain has obviously a Less of a populist movement um, than the uk or, yeah. or, or Italy um, and um, you know that what we're looking at is is a slowdown not a recession
0: so uh, what about uh, gen- us what about us versus europe which do you prefer
3: Well, you know, in in bond markets, um, the U.S. high yield market is still priced relatively well. You know, the level of spreads has widened compared to last year, but it's still far from the highs of 2016 uh, and oil is going down. And and so the U.S. market still looks um, a little bit expensive. Europe has been, in some cases, left for dead uh, between, uh, you know, slower growth, uh, the Brexit negotiations, the Italian negotiations on the budget, there's a lot of tail events, a lot of binary events that investors have just fled uh, European bond markets. So that's why, to us, l- it looks attractive. Then you have emerging markets, which are a little bit cheaper than the U.S., but historically still expensive, uh, with a few exceptions of countries that have serious issues like Argentina or, or, or Turkey. So overall, we, we like Europe the most in bond markets, in, in credit markets.
0: There you go. Alberto Gallo, always wonderful to hear your perspective. Alberto Gallo is partner and portfolio manager for the Algebras Macro Credit Fund uh, for Algebras Investments coming to us from London. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist.
2: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
0: There's been a marked slowdown over the past, I don't know, year, year and a half in the U.S. housing market that has been felt particularly at the upper ends of the uh, spectrum. Joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Bess Friedman, Chief Executive Officer of Brown-Harris-Stevens, the first ever CEO of the uh, luxury residential uh, home seller The one is one of the top Manhattan residential firms. Beth, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. So since you focus on the high end aspect of the market, can you give us a sense of just how pronounced the slowdown has been so far?
4: You know, it has, as you said accurately, it's been about a year of a slowdown and a correction. And, you know, we're feeling it. You know, our volume is off uh, from last year, but we were in need of a price correction. You know, the market had been going up, up, up for seven years. And this is really good for the market. It's healthy. Uh, we're still fluid. But at the same time, this is an opportunity for buyers to come in and really negotiate and get deals.
1: Well, let's just look at some of the numbers. The median price cut remained unchanged at around a half a million dollars. These are for ultra-luxury listings. And through the first three quarters of the year, nearly 85% of ultra-luxury listings, these are the priciest 10% in Manhattan, sold below the original asking price. Is it going to get worse?
4: You know, it's hard to say. I mean, we are, you have to remember whenever there's uncertainty in the market, uh, you know, we have these sort of global political headwinds going on that we all know about. I think that impacts consumer confidence. And so we see that, you know, with discretionary purchases, like at the high end, people are taking their time. International buyers are taking their time. Uh, but people who need to sell and buy, like people who are getting divorced or having babies or there's estate sales, those those that product is moving. The high end Uber luxury has slowed down a bit. But we're still seeing good numbers and good sales happening. Have China buyers completely pulled back? We have. That's been, I mean, I have to say overall, that's been very quiet. It really has been. I mean, we did see an influx of that a few years ago, and it's really quieted down. We don't see that anymore. What about other international buyers? You know, we're seeing uh, people from, you know, South America. We still have a nice influx of uh, buyers who are looking to purchase and doing deals in at least New York City. And Miami, I And assume. Miami as well. Although Miami, remember, Miami a heavy investor market. It's not like New York City. Um, and then a market like the Hamptons, which is a seasonal market, has also been impacted. But Palm Beach is doing incredibly well. So these are markets, it's hard to tell. But we're doing overall considerably well considering everything that's going on in our environment. Rates are low. Uh, people are still buying. New developments are moving. But people can negotiate now. So it's a great time for people to come in and buy.
1: Recently, we had Gerald Gutterman, the senior principal partner at Gutterman Partners, one of the largest owners of rental, residential, and commercial property in the United States. And he said a lot of the issues are related to overbuilding and to unrealistic expectations on the part of developers. That is not a stock market issue, it's not an interest rate issue, it's a certain supply and demand issue. Do you I see second, the same thing?
4: I second that emotion completely. I mean, remember, when the market is very fluid, you have an intersection between supply and demand. Right now, we have an oversupply and the demand is not caught up to it. Um, so I agree with that. We the, There's a lot of new developments in Manhattan, for example, that they have to come down in price. There's an oversupply. But the things that there's a demand for, that they're priced right, people are purchasing them. What
0: price range is the stickiest right now? In other words, what price range
4: is seeing no declines? Uh, Seeing no declines at all? You know, what's very fluid for us is the $1 to $2 million market. That market is moving uh, very well. And even under a $1 million, those one bedrooms and studios, very fluid. And what's the market that's seeing the biggest price declines? I would say at the higher end, over $10 million. I think that's the most impacted right now in Manhattan.
1: What about the number of days that properties are staying on the market? Much longer.
4: That's five months now. I mean, that's extended five months, six months. And again, if something is overpriced, it could be on for a year or two years because sellers are not being realistic and they need to be realistic if they really want to sell the property. What's your sense? How long do you think this is going to last? How deep will it go? Let me look into my crystal ball. Please do. (laughs) Um, I think that moving into next year, it's going to depend on our environment. I think think we're still going to be uh, selling properties, but we're going to have to still get into more of a correction. And I think next year is going to be a little choppy. And then hopefully by 2020, I think we'll be fluid again. I hope.
1: All right. Well, maybe they just need more yoga classes or... Pools Or, or
4: yoga is very important. Yes, yeah. yoga and kickboxing. <laughs> you need both because you have to allevi- alleviate the stress. Tim, well I'm going to go take some yoga and kickboxing class. Okay. Join me. All you right. can come hey, with fabulous. me. We'll do it together. Right, there you go. Well, there's a the lot
1: of space of for Thanks very much for being here. Bess Friedman is the chief executive of Brown-Harris. Stevens speaking to us about the real estate market and the woes that it feels, at least right now. Now let's turn our attention to one of the themes of investing. Many people and many companies invest in stocks and in funds that they believe further their environmental, social, or governance perspectives. And here to tell us more about the industry is Rachel Evans, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. And you can follow Rachel, as we all do, on Twitter at RachelEvans_NY. underscore N-Y. Rachel, great story. Tell us about ESG funds and how sometimes the label does not accurately present the detail.
5: Right. So ESG, short for environmental, social and governance, promises a lot. It sounds pretty good, right? The idea being that you can invest uh, in line with your values. So if you have an issue with, say, pollutants or the oil industry, maybe you can avoid those by buying one of these funds. However, the truth is a little bit more complicated than that. If you actually look behind the wrapper of some of the exchange traded funds that offer ESG uh, solutions, you may be a little bit surprised about what you find. We came across uh, a number of funds actually, Actually, include ExxonMobil, one of the, the largest oil companies in the world, uh, and other funds that include, you know, sort of pollutants um, and, and some of the socially uh, perhaps less um, responsible companies out there.
0: Rachel, I guess that this sort of goes to the heart of the confusion of what it means to be responsible, and uh, I guess that there's a question of how tailored some of these ESG funds are to specifically environmental or specifically corporate governance.
5: That's a huge challenge. And I mean, that's the thing. If you take 100 people, you can't find even two that will have exactly the same values. So that's the issue when you try and put these types of things into a fund. Inevitably, you have to make some kind of generalization, some kind of categorization to actually pull together companies and create a fund. And inevitably, if you look at 100 people, you know, there'll be one or two or three or even more people that will disagree with at least one of the companies in that fund. However, I think this, this goes a little bit more deep than that. Really, you're looking at these index funds that are tracking index index is created uh, based on a very very limited amount of data and data that doesn't necessarily speak to all the different types of ESG. So whilst ExxonMobil might find that it has actually quite good governance, it doesn't necessarily have the environmental or social chops that people might be looking for. So it's very difficult for an investor to get that full E and S and G out of an ESG fund.
1: Well, I mean, but, but truly how difficult would it be to find out whether the fund that you own or are thinking of owning owns Philip Morris? International which sells cigarettes.
5: It's not that challenging if you know where to look. I mean all of these uh, funds publish their holdings on a daily basis and we certainly spoke to retail investors that have gone through all of these funds and done an awful lot of work to actually find out exactly what they do own. The problem is when you do do that you find that there may be one or two companies in there and it's very difficult in the context of an ETF to actually exclude those companies from what you own.
0: Rachel, can you give us a sense of how popular
5: these funds have become? Because it's sort of not as relevant if there isn't that much money going into them. Right. So these funds, it has to be said, are still a relatively small part of the ETF universe. Uh, they are getting bigger outside of ETFs, if you think about mutual funds or if you think about separately managed accounts. ETF side, though, we're looking at about $7 billion. However, we are seeing significantly a higher rate of growth in ESG ETFs than we are in the wider ETF industry. So we've been seeing assets kind of, I think, have tripled uh, in the last three years, which is pretty significant. Um, And we are seeing funds that want to kind of service that demand kind of coming out. But for investors, it's very much more of a mixed picture.
1: Is there any pushback from investors that would force the ETF managers to push out the stocks of companies that perhaps go against the general mandate?
5: It's tricky. I mean, we saw after kind of some of the shootings earlier this year that some of the fund providers came out with new ETFs that explicitly excluded gun makers. So in that respect, you know, public pressure has uh, worked to move uh, ETF providers more towards something that the investors are, are looking for. The challenge, of course, is that you have a uh, numerous different types of investors. Not only do you have these different retail investors that may have different values, you also have to think about the institutional investors, the pension funds, the insurers, who may well actually prefer a fund that is more leaning towards good governance and less towards good environmental or social policies than a retail investor.
0: Rachel Evans, great story. Thank you so much for coming and joining us here. Rachel Evans is cross asset reporter for Bloomberg talking about the E and the S and the G and how sometimes sticking them all together can be really complicated, Pam. Yes. I mean, the concept of an environmentally and yet also governmentally, corporate, governmentally uh, responsible company, having those be all in tandem isn't, isn't intuitive.
1: Yes, and the idea of being just be transparent about what is actually in those exchange traded funds.
0: And what it means to be responsible. I mean, a lot of big philosophical questions all tried to
1: be quantified and then indexed.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
0: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?